Micah 6, beginning with verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oils? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Jerusalem is surrounded by the Assyrian army. They're outmanned, outgunned, and running out of time. Their fortifications cannot hold. Just as did the northern kingdom before it, Judah has reached the end of the line. There is no way out. The concept of no atheists in foxholes is an ancient one. Many people finally recognizing they have nowhere else to turn, turn to God. Here, believing they have no other chance of survival except that God himself intervenes, Israel's leaders march to the temple to petition the Lord for help. In the previous oracle, Micah described people who fill their lives with sources of security other than God, people drawn toward idolatry, people who look to things other than God's word for clarity and hope. And Micah described how when we do these things, the best thing God can do for us is to take them away, leaving us with nowhere to turn but to him. The peace, peace, false prophets can do nothing for God's people now. Their fortified city walls will not protect them either. The idols of these pagan gods sit silent and motionless, unable to help as always. None of us wants a retirement account to be wiped out, a house foreclosed on, a marriage in shambles, or to be shamed publicly. But God has used all kinds of disasters in the lives of his people to bring them to this same point. Now there is nowhere else to turn but to him. Adding some color to these proceedings, commentators imagine this procession arriving at the temple to find Micah standing in their way. What a thorn in our side, they probably think, here to say, I told you so. Instead, Micah says, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. The setting is suddenly transformed. They're still outside the temple, but now it is as though they are in a courtroom. Micah is the prosecutor for God, the offended party. Israel is the accused, called to hear their indictment and give a defense. The witnesses are the mountains and the hills. They were present when the covenant was made with Abraham. They were present for each act of God's faithfulness and love. They were present for each generation of Israel's disobedience and covenant breaking. You know the phrase, if these walls could talk. Well, the mountains and hills cannot talk, but they don't need to. By them, Israel is reminded that her own history testifies against her. 
even just now, as they're walking to the temple, to ask God for help in their great hour of need, what do you think they were thinking and saying? When your circumstances are at their worst, what's on your mind? Israel blamed God. He doesn't even care that we're suffering. We keep his rules, perform his rituals, and still he puts us through all this. God has let them down. So as one pastor put it, Israel seemed to find it tiresome having to be God's people. They were weary of having to live a certain way. This is the implication of the questions God asks in verse 3. What have I done to you and how have I wearied you? With the first question, he highlights their accusation against him. They're accusing him of working against them and for their enemies. How backwards they have it. This kind of grumbling against God continues today from downtrodden believers and from self-righteous unbelievers. Why does God allow such bad things to happen? Why doesn't he do something about the difficulties of the human condition, about my difficulties? Even while coming to seek God's aid, his people were grumbling against his sovereign hand. God asked them as if rhetorically, I've overburdened you? Kids, this is a lesson about God that he uses earthly things to teach us. Sometimes a parent or teacher will have to correct or punish us. Sometimes they'll give us a task we don't want to do. Sometimes even when we really want something, they tell us no. And when that happens, it's easy to grumble, to fixate on the no's, the discipline, and the disappointments. But through this, God is often trying to teach us to trust the love of that person. Even though we don't agree with what they're saying or doing now, we should remember that they've done a lot for our good before and that they believe this also is for our good. We don't start with what God does and use that to judge whether or not he's good. We start with the fact that God is good and we use that to trust what he does. With other people who do sometimes fail us and act sin sinfully and selfishly, this lesson helps us to be quick to forgive and to keep no record of wrong. But we ultimately learn this lesson so that we can apply it to God, who is never in the wrong. In this difficult position, Israel should know exactly who to blame and what needs to be done. But they didn't. They thought they had a complaint against God, but in reality, God was the one with the just complaint. Judah, in desperate times of trouble, comes to ask God for help. And God, seeing into their hearts, says, Why don't you trust me? On the day of Christ's coming, many will show up prepared to produce accusations against God. Why didn't you offer help? Why didn't you do anything? And with the earth itself as his witness, God will point to the cross by which they will stand condemned. Jesus said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Micah sees God's people acting no better than unbelievers. They think God has broken covenant with them. But truth quickly turns the tables when God presents his case. That Hebrew word case at the end of verse 1, indictment in verse 2, it's the same word, the same word Micah used earlier to bring the accusations by which the corrupt land barons and rulers of Israel were found guilty and condemned. But the language and tone of this indictment reveals a different purpose here. God continues to call these people, these rebellious people, my people. Twice, verse 3 and verse 5, my people. And this oracle does not lead to condemnation, but to an offer of covenant renewal through repentant, changed hearts. 
God's goal is never to punish his people. His goal is to draw us to himself in repentance and faith. This trial is about unfaithfulness. That's what Israel wanted. They thought, as we sometimes tend to think, that God is guilty and that we are innocent. But the evidence of history is not on their side. As his defense, God provides a comprehensive summary of his gracious faithfulness toward them. In verses 4 and 5, he lays out four Ebenezers, which summarize everything he's done for them. The first is the Exodus itself. I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. There's a play on words there in the Hebrew. The previous phrase, how have I wearied you, has the connotation of a weight pulling someone down. Yet what God actually did was to bring them up from Egypt, from the mud pits of the Nile. When we're failing to trust God's goodness, Christianity feels like a burden, like something that weighs us down. Loving neighbor, turning the other cheek, even showing up for Sunday worship. God's making all these demands of us, and in our distrust, we make Christianity seem like a heavy weight. Indeed, many false forms of the Christian religion have exactly that effect. But what we find in the true experience of Christ is just the opposite. Get-tos, not have-tos. In the law, we find freedom. In obedience, we find our joyful selves living as we were made to be. When we start with the goodness of God rather than our circumstances, Christianity itself begins to look very different to us. One example that's always been powerful to me is Isaiah's description of Sabbath keeping, clearly a get-to rather than a have-to. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, not going your own way or seeking your own pleasure, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. Israel accused God of weighing them down. In reality, he'd lifted them up. Micah's second Ebenezer is that God gave his people godly leaders. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. They were not perfect leaders. That would come only in Christ. But these divinely appointed people led God's people toward faithfulness and his blessing. Moses' leadership, Aaron's priestly service, and Miriam's joyful public praise serve as quite the contrast from the current leaders of Israel that Micah described in chapter 3. For the third Ebenezer, God suggests the story of Balak and Balaam, which serves both the broader and a specific purpose here. More broadly, the story continues the timeline narrative that from start to finish, the Exodus is a dramatic sign of God's faithfulness. He was with them the whole way. And this particular event fits within that timeline. But this event also helps reinforce a specifically relevant lesson. Balak was the king of Moab. As the Israelites approached the promised land, he was afraid they would use up all the resources of the land. In Numbers, we read of his efforts to stop them. Balak sends for Balaam, a man known for having some kind of power to bless and curse, and he pays him to put a curse on the Israelites. But that night, Yahweh comes to Balaam and tells him not to. Balaam tells Balak no, so Balak offers him even more money, and Balaam refuses again. After all this, God comes to Balaam and gives him very specific instructions. He has permission to go with Balak if he's asked again, and then only to do exactly as God directs. Balaam, however, jumps the gun. He decides preemptively to ride out to them without being asked. 
Angry at his disobedience, God sends the angel of the Lord, sorn drawn, to stand in their path. Now, Balaam doesn't see the angel, but his donkey does. And in order to save his life, she first turns aside from the path, but the angel moves there. And she changes directions again, and the angel moves there and boxes them in. So finally, the donkey just lays down. And each of these times that the donkey had acted to save Balaam, he had struck her hard. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you've made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. Now, broadly speaking, the story of Balak and Balaam is an example of God's supernatural intervention in Israel's history to bring about their safety and ultimate blessing. That's the next part of the story that I didn't even read. I read this part because very narrowly, these events with Balaam and his donkey highlight the same important lesson as before. If you start with the circumstances, you will never reason back to God's goodness. But if you start with the knowledge of who God is, you'll see everything else more clearly. The fourth Ebenezer in this passage is summarized by the phrase, what happened from Shatim to Gilgal. Shatim is on the east bank of the Jordan River. Gilgal's on the west bank. What happened between them is God's miraculous leading of Israel across the river and into the promised land. All of this combines to remind them that from the first step of the Exodus, bringing them out of slavery in the mud pits of Egypt, to these last steps across the bed of the Jordan River, God had been graciously faithful to his people. And this history is God's case. It's his vindication. He calls these acts righteous at the end of verse 5. Like the path of Balaam's donkey, they did not always appear righteous to faithless observers. But you cannot judge God's faithfulness by the appearance of things. You must instead start with the character of God, trusting in his goodness and believing him when he says that everything he does is for the good of those he's saving to glorify himself. Samuel raised a stone, a marker, to to remember, a permanent remembrance of God's help for his people in times of trouble. And that marker was called an Ebenezer. The four Ebenezers in this passage call Israel to do just that, remember God's saving acts. In Hebrew, the concept of remembering is more than just a mental exercise. It's a kind of renewed participation. At the Lord's Supper, when we remember Jesus' death until he comes, we're doing more than just thinking. Something real and supernatural is taking place as we participate in his death and resurrection, receiving his body and blood by faith. One commentary says this quite well. I am calls on Israel to renew the covenant. They're to remember his saving acts, a command which opens the door to them to participate anew in their salvation. To remember in Hebrew is to actualize the past into the present. I put it this way. Remembrance is participation. At this point, God rests his case. And judging by what Micah reports next, It was persuasive. His people are renewed in their hope. Yes, God can save us. But now the question is, what will it take? They still have the Assyrians to deal with. And while they remember now that God can come to their defense, 
they cannot quite remember how to get him on their side. Verses 6 and 7 catalog all they're willing to offer. Burnt offerings, those are expensive, leaving nothing of the offering behind for the one who offers it. And year-old calves, super expensive. You spend a year feeding and providing for the thing just to burn it up entirely before the Lord. Very impressive. Thousands of rams, that's a Solomonian offering, a big-time ordeal. 10,000 rivers of oil? Okay, now we're into hyperbole, imagined offerings larger than could ever really be offered. And offering the firstborn, that's way over the top. The God of Israel does not accept human sacrifices. But Micah's point is that they're throwing everything at the wall. They're throwing everything they have at this problem. Quality and quantity, from the most expensive to the most beloved, they will pay whatever it takes to get God on their side. This is the sad bargain many still try to drive with God. Billionaires giving away 99% of their wealth. Average Janes and Joes depriving themselves of happiness as self-imposed penance. The Roman Catholic Church trying to accomplish through repetition what Christ accomplished once and for all. Look at all I'm offering. Surely God will be satisfied with some of this. But notice in Micah's list the thing these people did not offer. Themselves. They want love and devotion to be proved through costly gifts. But the sign of love and devotion God demands is the life of justice and love, which proceeds from a repentant and renewed heart. Israel, willing to go through all the motions of religious life, still believes that actually living by faith is too much to ask. They want God to change, but God does not need to change. They need to change, and they don't want to. The right question is, what must they do to get themselves on God's side? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The practice of religion matters. Keeping the Lord's day, praise and words and song, prayers, sacraments, creeds, these things matter deeply to God, but only when they are accompanied by faith. Without faith, they're worse than worthless. And faith, which is invisible, is not made visible through religious acts. It's made visible through the life of justice and love, which proceeds from a repentant and renewed heart. Either our lives are offered to God for his use and purposes, or we are holding them back as our own possession because we don't trust him. There is nothing we can offer that pleases God in worship before we have first offered him our lives outside of it. Micah summarizes our duties as do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. Doing justice is doing what's right for our fellow man. It's being fair rather than selfish, treating people how image bearers of God deserve to be treated. Love kindness uses a very important biblical word, hesed. That was in our confession of sin this morning, God's loving kindness toward us. This is the kind of faithful love that God shows to his people, and it specifically emphasizes how the strong treat the weak. When we have power over someone else because of position or circumstances or wealth or strength, the kindness and aid we offer them, rather than taking advantage of the situation, that is hesed. When we could use our strength to our own advantage, when we could improve our situation at their expense, but instead we lift them up, We build them up. We give them what they lack. That's hesed. And that, toward one another, is the proof that God is working in our lives. 
Kids, this is about the kid who does not have what you have, whether that's stuff or a quick wit or a ton of friends. This is about the little brother or sister who needs help rather than insult and ridicule. We act with kindness toward those we could take advantage of because we remember how God acted toward us. We were weak. We were foolish. We were even disobedient. But God did not despise us. He gave himself for us. God had shown Israel both justice and hesed, yet they lived without them toward one another. It's a scary thing. I once heard another pastor warn that a person who does not practice mercy and justice with his fellow man has never participated in the covenant of grace. The way we live toward one another makes visible whether or not we are actually walking humbly with our God. Circumspectly or thoughtfully are also good translations of that word. We need to walk as people who remember who God is, remember what he has done for us. We devote our lives to him moment by moment because we constantly remember that he is worthy of such devotion. What will you do when you're surrounded? Or perhaps you're surrounded now. If God takes away all your objects of false security, the idols, the lies we tell ourselves to control the future, what will we say when we have nothing left to do but to turn to him? Israel said, here, take all these offerings and sacrifices. Take all my possessions. Take even my firstborn child. We laugh, but deep down, can't you hear yourself saying the same thing? We put lots of man-made rules in our lives to please God. We show up at church, we give money, we volunteer, we'll give God all the stuff we can think of. But what he wants from us does not start with stuff or time or effort. He will delight in those things, using them for our good and his glory, but only if we start by offering him ourselves. God reminded Israel of their amazing story, a story of his covenant faithfulness to a weak and undeserving people. But that story was a shadow, which pales in comparison to the story he wrote on the beams of the cross for us. As we face trials and difficulties and the unknowns of the future, we're called to remember that story. As we come and seek an audience with God, don't start with the circumstances. Start with the hesed of God. And in light of what God has done for us in Christ, don't start by bringing your stuff. Were the whole realm of nature yours, those gifts are still far too small. Love this amazing. The hesed that God has shown to us in Christ deserves more than just our stuff, our time, and our effort. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.